So, yeah, family's awesome. Um, okay, if I can get my computer to help out with this. We are obviously going through church history, and we're in that age of revolution that came after the age of enlightenment. And we're going to start talking, if we can get there fast enough, uh, about the, the French Revolution, because we've, we've been leading up to that, right? There's been stuff that hopefully you've seen that's been pointing in that direction. But um, we're in 1787, so the last thing we left with, and we need to start here with this, is that the United States drafted our Constitution in 1787, because it's only been a couple of years since the, the war's over. Everybody, again, everybody, when you say American Revolution, they think 1776. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's only been over for a couple of years now. The thing went on for eight years. Now, from a church history perspective, uh, they were really getting hot and heavy in their debates. They were getting really obnoxious with one another. So Ben Franklin begged George Washington, who was the president of the, of the uh, Congress at the time, to begin every session with prayer. Let me just read this in its entirety because it's an interesting argument. It says, in the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequently instances of a superintending providence in our favor. To that kind of providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And, and have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. The longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governed the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, that except the Lord build, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests, our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. Luckily, none of that has ever happened to the United States. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate incident despair of establishing governments by human wisdom, and leave it to chance, war, conquest. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth. Prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business, and that one or more of the clergy of the city be requested to officiate in that service. I know! Isn't that cool? Way cool Ben Franklin. Was Ben Franklin a deist? Yeah, he drifted toward deism. But it's important to stop and say, when the rubber hits the road, Ben Franklin's like, wait, we do have a God. You know that, right? Why don't we start here? And it is interesting that he's like, if we ignore God in what we're doing, we will start to get so politically infighting, we will start to get so myopic that everything we do is going to start falling apart Everything we do is going to be confounded. Everything we do is ultimately going to make us the bad guys in people's minds. Would you say that that is a legitimate prognostication? In true congressional style, they debated it. Because you can't just pray. I mean, that's not, you can't just do that. You need to discuss some politics here. 
Alexander Hamilton said, no, 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 you should have said that long ago. If we do that now, it just looks like we're stacking prayer on as an afterthought. We can't do that. Of course, Hamilton had been extremely religious, extremely devout in his youth, but during the war he kind of, if you can use the phrase, lost his religion. He refused to talk to God anymore. He was very frustrated about the whole thing. So to him, this is all just a bunch of superstitions. Because he's an Enlightenment thinker, right? And then the Enlightenment were far beyond stuff like praying. Roger Sherman said, no, no, no. It would be worse now to admit the prayer. Yes, we'll be embarrassed. But I'd rather be embarrassed than to forget to pray altogether. Hugh Williamson said, well, it's pretty clear why prayer has been admitted. It's because we have no money. <laughs> what? What does that have to do with anything? I read the transcripts and I'm not sure what that has to do with anything. Like charges you every time you pray. Yeah. No, I think, as far as I can tell, I think he's just like, we had so much to do and we had so little time and so many, that we just kind of jumped into what we were doing. Edmund Randolph said, no, we should have special sermons preached. Not just prayer every day, we have special sermon preached and then prayer every day. They debated it so long that they eventually just called for an adjournment for the day because they're like, whether we start each day in prayer or not, we eventually have to end each day. So let's talk about this later. And then they never talked about it again. So I bring this up because that means that prayer is the first congressional issue to die in committee. Whether or not we should start in prayer is the first thing that they debated about so much that it never happened. That is the founding of our country. Time to think it's important. And I especially think it's important given the rationale that Ben Franklin gave for doing it. He's like, if we don't get this straight, if we don't start with God, we're going to get so mired in politics, we'll never get things done the right way. And it got mired in politics. It didn't get done the right way. Okay. So they decided to put together a constitution, and after much debate, they decided on seven basic articles of the constitution, which I'm sure all of you no, by heart, right? Probably not. I'm going to go through this really, really quick, just so that you get some ideas of this. First article establishes Congress, right? Says, we're going to have a Congress. They're the ones that are going to be the chief legislative branch. They're going to make all the laws. That's where it's going to go. Uh, second, we're going to establish the office of the president. He's going to be the main executive. In other words, he's going to be the one that figures out how we do Congress's laws. This whole idea of, oh, do everything by executive privilege. It's like, that's kind of a later thing. This is... You're just supposed to figure out how to do what Congress says. And before I go any farther, no, it's a popular myth. They didn't offer him, they didn't offer George Washington to be king, and he turned him down to be president. Everybody loved, I, I don't know, have you ever heard that? That they offered him the opportunity to be king, and he said, no, 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 no. You know, because we sit there and we go, well, because that's what they did to Julius Caesar thrice. He did say no to the crowd, and that's what George Washington did. No. There was an army officer that wrote him a letter saying, you know, you could probably be king. You have an army. Everybody likes you. You're a warrior. You could probably be king. But he took his cue from a guy named Cincinnatus, for whom the, word, the name Cincinnati was named. But he's a Roman general who was, who was perfectly happy to be a, a, a farmer. But they called him up. They, they made him dictator of Rome. <laughs> which at that time was not a bad word. It just means you dictate everything. You're the chief executive. You're in charge of everything. One guy in charge of everything. And so he, he, he defeated the enemies of the people, saved his people, and within two weeks went back to being a farmer. Gave the title back up, said, here, I've been handed all the, all the money, all the power, 
all the authority, all the armor, or all the army in, in, in Rome, and I'm handing it back, and I'm going to go back to be a farmer. And then Washington specifically said, I want to be like Cincinnati's. Right? Yes, I'm commander-in-chief of the armed forces, and I'm going to disband the army. Everybody go home. We'll call you up if we need a militia. And I'm going to go back to being a farmer, because that's, that's what I want to be. Article 3 set up the federal court system. Guaranteed trial by jury, consistent laws, etc., like that sort of thing. And the appeal system, which is important. And it also defined what constitutes treason. To be, to be treason, it has to be an overt act of war as a sovereign nation against, against America. I should rephrase that. You are not a sovereign nation. America is the sovereign, sovereign nation. So you have to make an, an overt act of war against America as a sovereign nation. Or you have to, consist, to consciously give aid to a foreign enemy against the United States. That's treason. That's important because that comes up later in a, in a rather intense exchange between Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson and former President Teddy Roosevelt. Because Teddy Roosevelt had been president and then was done, and Woodrow Wilson was president, and Woodrow Wilson said, we need to pass a law that says, if you speak ill about the United States in time of war, that is treason. Right? If you start, if you start saying, because I know we, I know everybody's frowning because you would never think about this today. If you start saying, you know, you know, if ICE, I think ISIS is a great thing. I mean, they, they're they're motivated. They love the Lord. They're trying to do what they need to do. And people say, well, that's treason, right? Because you're because you're saying nice things about somebody else. You go, are you giving tangible aid to a foreign enemy of the United States? No. That it's not treason. It might be a number of different things. It might be ill-considered at best. Does it constitute treason? Giving them aid by encouraging them. Exactly. Teddy Roosevelt comes up. Teddy Roosevelt stood up and said, "So to question the wisdom of the president is itself treason." And Wilson said, "Yes." Teddy Roosevelt goes, "You're an idiot. I'm former president of the United States." But it's treason to stand against your president in time of war. Teddy Roosevelt's like, well, then you're being stupid. Am I treasonous? I'm a former president. I'm the most popular former president in, like, decades. And I think you're an idiot. Am I treasonous? Ouch. I was like, come on. But they did this several times. Oh, yeah. I mean, America's done this several times even before the Roosevelt had that debate. I mean, there are acts decided that the federal government is the ultimate legal authority in the land, not the state governments. And that anything that's going on in the state governments would, would have to defer to that, but everything the federal government does derives from what the states are doing. This is a decided improvement over the, vast, over the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation that were more or less governing the land since 1776 said everything has to be passed by the states. You have to bounce it by them. Everything's committee. And they have to decide on everything. The federal government is basically just, as I said here, an impotent clerk. You have no power of your own. States to print their own money. States do everything. And if they don't feel like helping, then they're not going to help anyone. So you, you just have to go and do what we tell you to do. The Constitution says, okay, flip-flop that. Because <laughs> we can't get anything done. So states, we, we can't do anything without you. But... The federal government, the hub, is what makes the wheel turn. That's what we're going to focus on. Article 5 established the amendment system. It says 
we're always intending to be tweaking this document. Unlike almost every other constitution that had ever been written, these guys said, we want to change it. We just want to make it a little complicated to change. You can't just come and, and, and scratch stuff out and write a new part in. But we want to make it very, very clear from the get-go that we're going to change this. It's got to morph as time goes on. It's not a, a dead, static document. The first 10 amendments that were, that were done in just, just a couple years, just four years later, in 1791, often grouped together in what we refer to as the Bill of Rights. Right. And there's some kind of important things there. And if we have the time, hopefully we'll get there today. Article 6 made it federal law the ultimate law and state laws subservient to that. In other words, saying the laws aren't, I mean, there are going to be some state laws, but there are going to be some core foundational federal laws that don't change just because you went from state line to state line. If, if the state laws were paramount, then we could never pass any, any federal laws that mean anything. And you're constantly going to have to wonder about what you're going to do from state to state. No, no. Federal law is going to be the thing that is the, the court. No, which means that we're going to have state representatives deciding all those federal laws. The federal laws are going to be the basis of things. We want some consistency. And that's why marijuana is illegal for the whole nation. Thank you. <laughs> well, but they, they are, they're not saying that federal law, they're not saying that everything is federal law or that federal law uh, is going to cover everything. There are going to be some things that are like um, speed limits. You guys get to decide your own speed limits. That there are speed limits is a federal law. What those speed limits are, you guys get to decide. You can, you know, by, by. But you're right. Not every, there are some things that you go, well, shouldn't this be a federal law? And then there are other things that maybe shouldn't. Uh, that's a whole other thing. Article 7 says this is how we're going to ratify it. The last thing we're going to talk about, how do we actually make this the law of the land, which is what they did then the next year. So, whirlwind tour of your own constitution. That same year, England created a colony in Sierra Leone, which has always bothered me because it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a spanish name, and I always think of that in South America somehow, and it's not, it's in West Africa. But, if you'll remember, um, the abolitionists have been working in England, things have been getting a lot better, slave trade is on its way out, but that means that there's a lot of freed slaves sitting in England, and in, in English territories, and nobody knows exactly what to do with them because there's still a lot of racism in England, but they're not slaves anymore, but we don't want to give them land in England, so what do you do with all those people you don't really want to have? You can't send them up to America as slaves anymore from England because there's laws about that now. So what do you do? Well, England sent a bunch of them to Nova Scotia, saying, kind of need to, kind of need to colonize Nova Scotia. Do you guys want Nova Scotia? First off, it's really stinking cold in Nova Scotia. And, and secondly, they, they ran into a bunch of racial discrimination there because, if you remember, slavery is still completely legal in the United States. And so there were slaves being, former slaves being re-enslaved. It's a bad scene. So they're like, okay, we've got to find someplace else to send them other than Nova Scotia. So England took over a section of West Africa that wasn't claimed by anybody other than West Africans. And who are they, right? Yeah, there are already tribes there, but it's not like they're British. Um, the Spaniards had, if you remember, Spain had, had settled a lot of, of West Africa. And then Spain said, I, I'm not getting anything out of this area, so I'm leaving. But they called it uh, Sierra, well, 
travel on. Anyway, essentially, the Sierra Leone, the, the mountain of the lions. But uh, we anglicized it as Sierra Leone. There you go. And we're going to send 500 people there. Freed slaves in 1787. There. Go back to Africa. You've got your own country. It's not like a, get, go back to Africa. It's like, no, give you your own little colony. Go, enjoy. Look, you're back home. Why not? Yeah, they're Africans. They're Africans. They can go back to Africa. By the way, we learned nothing about this one. Liberia. Anyway, but um, <laughs> go back to Africa. Look, you're from there. And they go, I, I'm not. Actually, I was born in England. Go, go back to Africa. Enjoy having your own country. It's like us. It's like us saying, Yeah, go back to Yugoslavia. I'm British. Oh, it's Europe. Go back to Yugoslavia. Enjoy yourself. We did that. Would we be slavery illegal? Then again, I'm Everybody, it's, oh, hey, everybody want to go back to Africa? Well, we'll provide a couple ships. Yeah. That did not work. They said, look, we're American. Yeah. Anyway. No. So, five hundred guys go back to Africa and are properly massacred by the West Africans. Who are the people who enslaved them in the first place, right? I mean, the one place, if you are a slave, that I would think you would not want to go is West Africa. Because it was the West African tribes that were enslaving everybody in the first place. So, yeah. Hey. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, there's 64 left. Um, five years later, they said, what? I thought most, or not most, and many of the slavers got for the Arabs. Actually, we got a lot of our, well, I guess Northwest Africa. This whole area was kind of the slave coast. But we got, we, the Portuguese in particular, got most of the slaves from up in like what we would consider like Mauritania, this this area up here, which is Arabs. But then down here, um, I don't want to say this. Um, this would be more like the, uh, think of this like uh, 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 metropolitan slave markets, and this down here is like backwoods slave markets. So you got you got all these areas up here that all these western tribes and all these have traded up with the, the Moors up here and, and they're selling to Europe because these guys have the relationship with Europe. But pretty much this whole area was, was a, they even refer to it as like the slave coast. Um, do you remember when we talked about um, John Newton who had become a slave driver and all that kind of stuff? He was actually in this area then too because they kind of went to this. The seedy parts of Africa, you know, the, the, the back streets of Africa down here as opposed to the more reputable parts of Africa up here where you could buy your slaves in a legitimate market as God intended. So, okay, anyway. Since then, Sierra Leone has become a hotbed of revolutions in tribal warfare and re-enslavement because slavery in that area uh, wasn't abolished until 1928. So they kept getting re-enslaved and stuff, which is not a lot of fun. Uh, and most recently, a bunch of military coups uh, really horrible civil wars and Ebola epidemics. So, not the greatest like place to move to. You kind of feel bad about all of that. Um, civil wars in in Sierra Leone, and this is worth talking about for a sec, became famous around the world for particularly a number of things, but particularly two things. Number one is blood diamonds or conflict diamonds. Have you ever heard that expression? What it is is uh, a, a lot of the warlords who, and there's a ton of different factions, that in order to um, to fund what they're doing, uh, sold their diamonds all around the world, had their own kind of illegal diamond mines and things, and uh, 
and send them out on an international market. But Sierra Leone is one of the top, I think, six diamond producers in the world, though many of its people live in squalor and work in squalor and apps. This is a diamond mine. How would you like to work there 10 hours a day? It's just horrific. Um, but the international community basically said, okay, maybe we shouldn't buy conflict diamonds from Sierra Leone. Maybe we're just propping up really obnoxious people. And so it became illegal uh, in most areas in the, in the world to, to buy or distribute conflict diamonds from Sierra Leone or blood diamonds. Secondly, it was famous for whole communities getting their limbs amputated by warlords who would even make piles of the limbs in the middle of the street to kind of spread terror. Because it works, by the way. And if you chop off the hands of everybody in the community, odds are your community is going to die, right? Because there's not even anybody to tie a tourniquet. Uh, I was trying to explain this to Alex the other day, and he said, well, yeah, because they couldn't feed themselves. I'm like, you're going to die within a, you know, your entire community died within a couple of hours if you're not careful. Um, so it's really an, an, an unpleasant time. In fact, it's not uncommon at the diamond mines for them just, just knee-jerk to chop off at least one limb off of every one of their workers just to hamper their ability to steal the diamonds. Who cares? There's always workers. I mean, a, a lack of people is not our problem. Our problem is that sometimes these people will steal a diamond. But, you know, if they've only got one hand, it's hard for them to, to do that kind of stuff. Well, it's supposed to. This, however, provided an opportunity for Christian aid workers to come to Sierra Leone to minister to people. In fact, there's a bunch of different Christian organizations that came together in a movement called Hands for Africa. I don't know if you've heard anything about this. Anyway, but they worked together to provide canes and prosthetics, basic first aid, um, all this kind of stuff to, to, the, to the various tribes and the various villages and things, um, which actually bugged a lot of the warlords who were using this specifically to, to generate terror. But it also afforded the opportunity for whole villages to come to know the Lord. Now, there, is, there are a number of different Christian churches in Sierra Leone because of how it started. Uh, there's a number of, of kids, I mean, they're uh, English former slaves who, who were involved in Methodist churches or Baptist churches or whatever, they went to Sierra Leone. But uh, the problem with a lot of our understanding of Africa is that we try to bring European, American technology, American clothing, European-American social values into an area without changing the whole tribal dynamic of things. And if the whole tribal dynamic is killed horrifically so that you have power in the area, all you do is give them really much nicer guns to do that. But we keep thinking that if what we do is change the outsides of things, surely that will change the insides of things, right? Has that ever worked in the history of mankind? That if you just change the outside of things, you'll end up changing the inside of people's hearts. And yet, an amazing amount of Christians, that's exactly what we do. Now, I would argue that by working on changing the conditions here, we do, we can show Christ. We can make a difference in people's lives, but we need to do it as an act of consciously working towards changing their inner hearts. Yeah, it's hard, but 
so it's understanding the world you live in. Okay. In similar mindsets, uh, 1788, the first European settlement happened in Australia. Because, okay, we found a place to ship off our unwanted former slaves. What do you do with all those unwanted criminals? Because you got prisons filled with people. What do you do with them? You don't want these guys any more than you want all those freed slaves. If you remember, they used to have Georgia. That's what Georgia was for. Ship guys off to Georgia. Anybody who wants to go to Georgia, you can get out of prison and just go work in Georgia. Okay. And then others were sent as, indent as indentured servants to, to the Americas in general. I mean, it's like you can either have your own land in Georgia or be an indentured servant somewhere else. Back yourself out. But now that the colonies are gone, you don't have that as an opportunity. What do you do? Where do you ship off your convicts? Hey, remember when James Cook had mapped up the, 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 the whole coastline of New South Wales 20 years ago? This whole southern continent thing? He's like, oh yeah, there's, there's this whole place down there. Down in Botany Bay and everything. Oh, this is great. For years, England's like, how do we get people to go across the world to an inhospitable continent? It is literally as far away as they could possibly get. It's true. You can try that. Except people caught on to that old Greenland thing. Look, it's wonderful man. I don't think so. So, a guy named Thomas Townsend, Lord Sidney, came up with the idea of sending convicts to start this new life in Botany Bay. Like, hey, again, remember how we did it in Georgia? You can do that in Botany Bay. Why don't you go there? So they did, and they named their colony Sydney after Lord Sydney. Again, an amazing amount of this stuff. You know, it's like, why is it New York? Why is it this? It's like, because it's named after people. Anyway, and in classic historical form, uh, many of the first colonists starved the first few months, and half the native population died from European smallpox. Yay! Now, again, you can give two minds of this. Do you, you find yourself going, well, we're horrible for... for Infecting all these people. Well, yeah, they didn't, didn't mean to. There was plenty of land. It actually makes sense. It's, nobody actually did it. This one, nobody really did anything all that bad. But it's just an unfortunate problem of two different disparate sets of people inhabiting the same space with different antibodies. Anyway, speaking of Georgia, because Georgia, speaking of Georgia, this is the same year that the first African Baptist Church of Savannah was officially recognized. And you go, oh, okay, that's nice. Making it the first Baptist church in the United States to be comprised of and designed for African Americans. This is a patch, you can't read it really well because this is the biggest picture I can find of it. But there's a patch that you can get from the church's website saying, first African Baptist church, the oldest black church in North America. This is the first church that was specifically incorporated and officially uh, accepted in a denomination. It's an African-American church. Yeah, it's way cool. Even though they've been meeting together for a decade. Yes, they've been meeting together for a while. But they've officially been recognized, which is the thing, which is the, the biggest deal. So, 17th... Yeah, actually. And technically, it's, since you're talking about meeting together, you go, uh, technically it's a little older than our country. The congregation is older than our country. 1773, freed slave George Lyle began leading other slaves to the Lord, including uh, Andrew Bryan, David George, others. 
and David George went and founded his own congregation across the river in South Carolina called the Silver Bluff Church, which is also still in existence today. So, um, they began worshiping together in Savannah, and by 1782, a bunch of black loyalists were actually evacuated. Now, if you remember 1782, this is still during the Revolutionary War, right? 1782, a lot of black loyalists were evacuated by the British. Because the British said, by the way, if you come to English territory, you don't get enslaved in English territory. You can get enslaved in Africa and shipped to English territory, but you can't become enslaved in English territory. How would you like to leave America and go to English territory? It's one last little Hail Mary pass by England to, to stick it to America in the middle of the Revolutionary War. So, George Lyle moved to Jamaica with his family. It's like, yeah, oh, I'm fine with that. How about that? David George moved to Nova Scotia and then to Sierra Leone. Which should be your... Did he die? I'm sure that the... Um, no, actually, he was one of the, the, the chunk of people that came over from Nova Scotia. 500 people ill-armed got massacred. 1,200 people well-armed. They, they found a free town and stuck around for a while. Um, I'm sure Sierra Leone has some very nice bits to it. I'm sure it's very nice. It's just, yes, I think I think her reaction to, and then you moved to Sierra Leone, should kind of be, I'm generally sorry that that happened. But Andrew Bryan stayed in Savannah to continue the ministry there. He's like, I specifically want to minister to these people, freed and, 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 uh, and still enslaved people. And so, by 1788, they had 67 regular attenders and were officially recognized by the Baptist Church, making history as America's first official black church. And this is actually a uh, stained glass thing from their, their window in their church building. Uh, and Reverend Andrew Bryan. It's really kind of cool, actually, to see some of this stuff change as time goes on. Um, speaking of first, 1789, John Carroll became the, America's first bishop, first Catholic bishop. Because remember the last time we talked about, we talked about like other bishops, you know, Methodist bishops and things. But he was born in Maryland, which was originally a Catholic colony, right? The only Catholic colony. So, which is why so many of of the uh, of the Catholics in the in the country were were in Maryland. So it's called Maryland because there's Catholics. Um, only partially. It's called Maryland because it was named after King Charles's wife. Mary, who was herself devoutly Catholic, and she was named Mary. She was named Mary because she was Catholic. So, is it, is it named Maryland because of Catholicism? Technically, because Mary's parents called her Mary because of Mary, and he called this Maryland because anyway. Um, he was born to an Irish Catholic father and became a Jesuit and went to France in 1755 to study at Saint Omer in Liège. Uh, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Um, but if you remember, Pope. I was going to say, were the Jesuits back yet or not? No, Pope Clement ended up dissolving the Jesuits uh, um, 18 years later in 1773, right? Because they were so, so annoyingly successful at everything that they were doing. So we must stop that for Jesus' sake. So Carol had to choose between renouncing his order or returning to America. Because if you remember, if you're a Jesuit, you can either say, fine, I won't be a Jesuit, or you go somewhere where they don't care what the Pope says. Nobody in America cared what the Pope says. You can go to England, you can go to America, you could go to uh, 
you could go to the Austrian Empire because they're devoutly Catholic and don't like the Pope. So you, know, you could go to all sorts of different things. So he returned to America as a missionary since Catholic churches weren't allowed to operate publicly. Remember, there's still laws in America about you can't be, you can be Catholic, but you just can't have a Catholic service because that offends God. So he goes back to be a missionary and not officially start churches because he can't, but he can start Catholics. He did, he did ingratiate himself to the colonial leaders in 1776 when they said, would you be willing to go to Quebec and talk to Bishop Briand to convince the French Canadians to join us against the British? They're French, they're Catholic. The British are not French and not Catholic. Maybe if we send an American Catholic to talk to them, they'll like us instead of the British. Seems like a good plan. However, Briand excommunicated Carol for siding with the Americans. Against whom they just lost a war. They're like, I don't, I, I, we don't like the British, but you're the guys that fought us during the French and Indian War. You're the guys that invaded Quebec. We don't like you. Why would we like you? You're excommunicated for siding with the Americans. And what? How can you excommunicate me for my political views? Because I'm Catholic. No. I'm, a, I'm a bishop. I can do anything I want. 1785. After the war now, which means that the American churches are no longer under the governance of the English bishop, right? Because we're independent. It's like, woo! We got no bishop! I didn't think about that! We're bishopless! So he petitioned Rome to appoint an American bishop to oversee the churches, because we got no bishop anymore. There's a grand total of 19 priests in Maryland, which means 19 priests in America. It's a short list of possibilities, right? And pretty much the other 18 priests all looked at Carol and went, you're the only one that studied in France. You're the, you taught. You're the only one we want to be bishop. This was your idea. This is your idea. You be bishop. <laughs> so Rome said, give us a list. And they sent the list. Carol. <laughs> so he got reinstated. I mean, reinstated. Well, I think this, pardon This is the beauty of it. Okay, great. An Irish. They didn't like the Irish. Excommunicated. They didn't like excommunicated. <laughs> Jesuit! <laughs> Becomes the first Catholic bishop in the United States. <laughs> I can't help but say, which kind of rocks, if you ask me. I'm like, that is totally an American way of doing it. Yeah. In your face, Rome. <laughs> I, I mean, excommunicated by Quebec, but Rome didn't. And so, and, and so when they made the case that, it's like, I only got excommunicated on political, for political things. Rome's like, well, you're all I got. Part, oh yeah. Who's who's whose dad or uncle bought what? And how much money did they pay for it? Here it's just like once you agreed that America should have its own bishop, and you asked for a list, and we sent you a list that said Carol. You're kind of up a creek if you're Rome, aren't you? So, I just love this. It just, I'm not saying that they were actively thumbing their nose at authority, but in practical point, they ended up thumbing their nose at authority. But I just love the Irish excommunicated Jesuit. Now, in order to be bishop, um, he couldn't be a Jesuit anymore. That's not what Jesuits were. So he actually left the Jesuit order, but it's not like I left the Jesuits because I agreed that they're bad or anything like that. So, I mean, that part of it at least kind of 
fixed himself politically. But I just love that. Way to go, John Carroll. Anyway, one of his first actions was to create a school to train Catholics called Georgetown University. Ever hear of Georgetown, Washington, D.C. area? Run by Jesuits! Love it! Anyway, um, he also attended the inauguration of the president in, 1780, uh, in 1789, because that's when the president gets inaugurated, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that interview was just that excited. No, he's a warrior, he's commander-in-chief, he's national icon, he's president of Congress, pretty much a shoe-in. In fact, he's voted in unanimously. Unanimously. It's like, for both terms of office. The first time around, and the second time around. Except for his own vote. Except for his own vote, which he refused to cast for himself because he was trying to get classified. But no other candidate since then has ever even come close to doing anything like this. So what's in office? Faced two major issues. A bunch, but two major ones. A major domestic military issue with which war? Little Turtle. Little Turtle War, right? Very important. Very important war in American history that nobody knows about because the history teacher was dumped. Fought against Chief Little Turtle, his Native American Confederates in the Ohio Territory. We talked about it at length last time. Very, very, very crucially important. And then he also had a major economic issue with the need to repay the over. This isn't anywhere near as colorful sounding. But he needed to repay the overseas debts of the United States accrued during the war. We took out a lot of money from a lot of different people. What do you do with that? Wait, wait, wait. We repay our debts? Doesn't sound very American. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's really kind of a recent anyway. Um, problem is, most of the southern states had already repaid their debts for various sort of reasons. Part of it is they didn't have as many because uh, they didn't have as much problem with the British who were really trying to pound New England and things. But anyway, so should they really be expected to shoulder the repayment of the northern states' debts? Now that we have a really nice federal government where everybody's working together, we all throw our money into a big pile. We've repaid all of our debts, or at least most of them. You guys haven't repaid yours, so let's all throw our money in a big pile and repay their debts. I don't want to throw my money in the pile and repay their debts. It's not theirs, it's ours now, because we're all Oh, okay. Okay, I agree. I agree. But it's also like, it's also like if you say in, in, in Christ, we were all part of one community, right? In Acts, it's like. Hollywood has never had any problems with that. It's not like anybody's ever got a prenuptial agreement saying, I have more money than you do, and I need to protect that money. Or if we were all in, in, in the church, and we're all, you know, obviously we all just link all of our bank accounts, and we all live in exactly the same level of housing, and have the same level of food, and, pardon me? Japuzo, that crazy cult. Yes, exactly. Japuzo's not, Japuzo's not a cult. Um, but, um, but, yeah, it, it messes with people if you were to say, all right, you've got a lot of money. Why don't you give half of that to the people in our church that um, haven't worked as hard as you have? By the way, phrase it like that. See how people, you know, <laughs> see how people react to that. And that's the way that, that comes across is people balk at that. And it's like, but I worked hard for this, and we paid all of our debts, and hey. So, under the Articles of Confederation, there would have been nothing you could do. You just said, well, you're out of luck. There's nothing you can do. 
but with the Constitution, Washington and crazy smart James Madison. Anytime that anybody did something insanely smart back then, it was James Madison. Just the, <laughs> James Madison was just, he made uh, Thomas Jefferson look like a incompetent first grader. So, James Madison, crazy smart guy, uh, came up with a compromise. Anybody remember what they did? Okay. He said, Southern states, you're going to help with the debt. But what we'll do is we'll move this capital from Philadelphia to a neutral, more southern position that's not part of any state. We're, gonna, we're just going to map out some unused land on the Potomac. And that's where we'll put the centrally located um, government. Does that make sense? What are you going to call that area? If it's not part of a given state, it's not a state, it's a district, what would you call it? Capital District. District of Columbia, because Columbia is this name for America, a more poetic name for America. Victory. So, pardon me? Victory. Victory. So, District of Columbia, not part of any state, therefore not politically connected to any state. Yay! And that's why we have our, if you've ever, ever wondered, why did we, didn't we start off, didn't the Continental Congress keep meeting in Philadelphia? Why are they not in Philadelphia? Well, they want to have their own, their own capital. This is why they wanted to have their own capital, to get the southern states to pay for the debt. And yet it also still makes sense. The city that was later built there was named in Washington's honor, so that's where you get the city of Washington. Yeah. Anyway, 1789 is also when the French Revolution starts kicking in. The American Revolution, all the ripple effects, now we're getting the French Revolution. Wacky. Pardon me? Did you just say, vive le roi? Vive le roi? Long live the king? Get out of here, you monarchist! What's wrong with you? He's not even an American speaking monarchist. Yeah, treason! Murder! It's one of those days in Sunday school. <laughs> French Revolution. If you remember, speaking of Duval, speaking of the French has been struggling for a while under King Louis the Fourteenth and his Austrian wife, Marie Antoinette, and their total authoritarian control of the government. This is something that we were talking about beforehand. Something that Britain hasn't ever had, um, and, and has certainly had nothing remotely like this for a long time is the sense of the total control of the king. He is the absolute despot, the absolute controller of every part of the government. Everything, he, he oversees everything, everything goes to the king. England hasn't had anything remotely like that in a hundred years. They, it was never total control like that. And for the last hundred years, they've had a parliament with, uh, with their own constitution since the English Civil War, and it's like, no, no. But under France, it's been anything the king wants, that's what the king gets, because he's the the vicar of Christ in many ways. He stands in Christ, in God's place here. And Louis, um, and especially his wife, didn't do that well. Added to that, they are struggling with famine, brought about by the ripple effects of... The volcano explosion. Mount Lockheed's eruption, right? which has been causing deaths all over the place. Like I said, six million people died around the world because of Mount Lackey. So people are at a breaking point in France, really, really struggling. They were, they were struggling beforehand. Now they're crazy struggling. They don't know what they're going to do. 
as boring as it sounds, and I'm sorry that it sounds boring, a lot of this comes down to basic economics. I'd love to say, I thought that was a military coup. No, that happens. They've lost the Seven Years' War, then they got nothing out of the Treaty of Paris at the end of the Revolutionary War, and then they lost America as a trading partner because we cozied back up to England, right? So France is totally broke. Every time they've tried to do anything, it keeps falling flat. They're, they're just sitting there going, I, do, I keep rolling nothing with risk. I'm playing risk, I keep rolling ones. I'm dying here. When you find yourself in a position as a government, uh, misspelled, uh, you can print more money, which causes rampant inflation, right? By the way, people still try to do that. Let's make more money. You can't make more money. You can print more money. That's not the same thing. Or you can get more money, either from wars or from your own people. Right? And the war thing has not been working out. There's two major world wars now that we've screwed up. So Louis says, I, I got nothing. I got to ask for more taxes for my people. Or you could start selling off, like, gold furniture. You could, you could be doing that. Isn't that, what, uh, isn't that what Cromwell did in the English Revolution? He's just like, there's a lot of gold sitting around. I refuse to retax my own people. I'm going to take the gold from the monarchy. I'm going to take the gold from these big cathedrals. I'm going to melt it down. I'm going to feed my people. Duh. Is that evil or is that brilliant? Depends on your take on, on Cromwell. Louis says, well, I can't do that. I need my gold plates. What else would I eat upon? So. Silver. <laughs> How gauche? Silver plates? Like a peasant? <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, that is the basic take of the monarchy. It's just like, well, if we didn't have lobster every day, we'd starve. You have tilapia. Yeah, in, in Louis' defense, it might not have been just like his own personal win, because there was this whole, like, I don't know, this whole, like, tradition machine. They call it the ancient regime. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, it, all the people around him had a vested interest in keeping that intact while he was really popular to try to smash that. Yep. So he's in a really tough spot. He is in a tough spot, and he's also a doofus. So, yeah, yeah. And the, the, the combination, no, seriously, if, if he had been a really solid stand-up guy and tried, he would have, it would have been like swimming upstream. It would have been very hard, but he didn't even try because he was also kind of, yeah. So, from what Emily is saying, I think then is if, if he wouldn't have taxed the people, if he would have tried to get rid of the wealth of the monarchy, something like that, then he may have made, he may have made some friends with the people, but maybe not, but he would have made enemies of his current friends. Sure. So, really wouldn't have and, helped him. And, and since, since most of the high-level ministers, like ministers of finance and stuff like that, were, like, incredibly corrupt... Um, well, it's, it's kind of like when we did the whole, we are the world, we are, the, and, and we sent medical supplies and things to areas of, of Africa that were struggling with no medical supplies and no no food, so we sent food and stuff, and it all rotted on the docks and got thrown into the ocean because the warlords had been using lack of medical supplies and lack of food as weapons. It's like, but we, we, we got all this stuff, you know, uh-huh, and most of it was never gotten to the people that needed it because there's a vested interest of the people involved. Which is not to say we can't help, just saying there's a vested interest of the people involved to not letting you help in that way. Anyway, so to deal with the economic crisis, oh, we're falling apart, they made an assemblies of Estates General. That's not how you pronounce it in French, but that's all right. 
uh, based on percentage of land holdings. There were three estates. The first estate was the clergy that owned 10% of France. Stop and think about that for a second. The clergy is totally in bed with the crown. I mean, totally. So they own 10% of everything. They don't pay any taxes because they're clergy, but they have the legal right to require a 10% tithe from all their <laughs> congregants over and above the tax that the king is asking for. And you have to give them the top 10% because if not, you hate Jesus and we excommunicate you. The Catholic Church is all-powerful in France. Second estate is the nobles that own 25% of France at the time. The king, various nobles. Third estate are the commoners that comprise 95% of the population, own 65% of the land, and have zero say in anything. They have absolutely no legal rights whatsoever to representation up until this point. How's that work out for you? So, thanks to the Industrial Revolution, because remember, we've in the Industrial Revolution, the third estate started for the first time having a middle class of people that you're like, well, you're not insanely wealthy nobles, but you're not insanely poor peasants. There's actually a middle class of professional, prosperous, well-educated people. Until now. Okay, do the math on that. Centuries, nobody's ever let us do anything. We actually have a caucus. We actually are intelligent. We're well organized, and now finally we have a say. By the way, in discussing all this, uh, Irish writer Edmund Burke argued that, in point of practice, the press constituted a fourth estate because they could sway public opinion. They don't own any property, but they still control and sway public opinion. Have you ever heard anybody refer to the press as the fourth estate? This is where this comes from. Anyway, very quickly they realize the king's a doofus. He doesn't understand anything we're saying. He will not work with us. He is totally out of touch with 95% of his country. So they created a national assembly. They're like, we need to run the country. So this third estate, comprising 95% of the population, we're going to run it. By the way, the first two estates, you're, happy, you're welcome to join us. We're not taking it away from you, but we are going to run the country. Be part of it. If you have a problem with that, be part of it. So most of the clergy and some of the nobles crossed over the picket lines and said, yeah, all right, we'll, we'll join you. But the king was like, no, 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 no. That's how you'd say that in French. Barred them from their own chambers, fired his own minister of finance. He's like, no, 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 I'm still controlling things. I'm the king. I control everything. It's my world. The people thought Louis might be trying to overthrow the assembly when he fired his own minister, so they began to riot. So Louis, being brilliant, brought in Austrian mercenaries. Because he's like, if I pay you enough money out of my copious coffers, you will not turn on me like my people have. You can't trust the French. You can trust mercenaries, because as long as you pay them. Which made the people riot all the more, and now they're getting support from the French guard. The French army is rioting alongside the people, because they're like, really, you brought in foreigners to fight Frenchmen? Really? Your wife's family sent them over from Austria? Oh, way to go, Louis. On July 14th, mobs stormed the Bastille prison and fortress in Paris to steal weapons and ammunition. Anybody know what we tend to call July 14th? Bastille Day. Bastille Day. They don't. They call it the 14th of July. So it's like we call it the 4th of July here. We call it Bastille Day. 
but it's still a public holiday in France, even today. And they took the governor of the prison and they beat him to death and chopped his head off and put it on a pike and ran all over Paris with his head on a pike. And it's a wacky fun day. Louis stepped back. He's like, I don't know what to do. I'm going to take my Austrians off the streets. And the National Assembly said, okay, which means that now it's just chaos. Now there's nobody in charge. So they said, all right, we're, that's it. We're going to declare a new communal government, a commune, i.e. of commoners. All the commoners are now in charge of this. Without the king in charge, order began to break down. Think of every post-apocalyptic movie you've ever seen and every TV show. That's France at this time. Um, buildings are burned. Gangs, usually made up of former soldiers, ravaged the countryside. Villages walled themselves off from everybody else to try to become fortresses and protect themselves. Chaos. This is post-apocalyptic. You might as well be zombies running around. This is the way France is in the, in the 1780s. So, one night, um, and one night, uh, in, in August of 1789, to try to restore some sort of order, the National Assembly issued a Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. Some philosophical principles loosely based on the Declaration of Independence. And they officially abolished the system of privilege that the ruling classes had. Like, that's it. This has fallen apart to the point where it no longer exists. We don't, we don't acknowledge it at all anymore. So, feudalism is abolished. No one owes their lord anything. You're done. All you need to do is pay taxes to your government, just like everybody else does. You are a citizen, your lord is a citizen, everybody just pays taxes. Does that work? Is that good or bad? Pardon me? Well, you need an army now to collect your taxes from your people, but that's okay, because everybody's fine with doing it, because they don't have to pay their... Lord, and, he, and now the Lord has to pay taxes. How does the Lord get money, by the way? From the citizens. But he can't do that anymore. That's okay, because they're rich. They deserve this start. Everybody is the same now. And I'm not defending the rich, per se, but I'm saying you, you can't just flip one switch in a, in a system, right? Because now you go, yeah, now the, these, these lords have no income and still have to pay taxes. And on their property, which is still copious amounts of property and stuff, so they have to pay tons of taxes with no income. But that's okay, because they're rich and they deserve it. Religious orders are abolished. Because they own 10% of them, that's horrible. So, government takes over running all the churches, which now have to pay taxes, just like everybody else. And, by the way, you can't impose tithes on your congregations anymore. Because that's the government's job to do taxes. But we have to pay taxes. Yes, you do. But we can't ask for money. Right. Rich people, how do we get money to pay our taxes? That's up to you guys. Sell your church building. I don't care what you do. But you have to pay taxes just like any other citizen. And by the way, you can't get any money. Um, this stinks. Monks and nuns are forced to renounce their vows. Come on. Be citizens just like everybody else. None of this kind of stuff. Monasteries, owning land, making other people. No, 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 no. Renounce your vows or leave the country. Oh, yeah. All the monasteries and all the nunneries are now state property, as God intended. By the way, this hatred for the Catholic Church comes from a lot of fronts. First off, like I said, church has been a lapdog for the, for the aristocracy for centuries, right? And now we hate the aristocracy, so we're going to hate the church. Anytime the church ties itself to a political movement that is now unpopular, the church is going to become unpopular. 
by the way, we started a culture war in the United States for conservatism, right? Liberals are immoral by definition. Conservatives are moral by definition. The United States at the, at the moment, what's the temperature of the United States in terms of feeling comfortable about conservatives versus liberals? Conservative values, popular, unpopular? Unpopular. By the way, we've tied ourselves to that and then lost the culture war. Have we learned nothing from France? Study history or you're doomed to repeat it. Secondly, the fact that the French church was filthy sink and match. While its people were starving in the street, they learned nothing from Cromwell. Could have very possibly said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Think this through 100 years ago. What did England do? Third, the fact that many of the new leaders were Huguenots, the French followers of Jean Calvin, right? We don't like Calvin, we don't like Catholics to begin with. Fourth, Enlightenment thinkers like Voltaire and Gibbon all successfully argued that religion is horrible. Religion is the cause of every problem. It's the opponent of reason. Of course religion is bad. Put that all together, and what do you have? A revolution that says religion is horrible. Let's get rid of this. Right? This makes reasonable sense. How that revolution hit the region of Liège, where the prince-bishop gets deposed and sent into exile? Because remember, they had prince-bishops in France. I'm the bishop of the area. By the way, I'm also the legal authority in the area. Anything I do is legal. Legal in the eyes of the king, legal in the eyes of God. I am not just a bishop, I'm not just a prince, I'm a prince bishop. I can I can I can burn down your house, take all of your stuff, take your wife and throw her into my own dungeon and sleep with her all I want. Because I'm the prince bishop. It pleases God for me to be happy. Can you see why maybe people in France go, I'm uncomfortable with the prince bishop idea. I'm I'm uncomfortable that any one guy has absolute power in both temporal and religious authority. So, the new civil constitution of the clergy made all religious workers employee of the government, demanded they all swear an oath of loyalty to the state above all. You are, you are more loyal to the state than you are to Rome, more loyal to the state than you are to God. Swear. Swear right now. 24% of the clergy swore. A quarter of them. The rest of them refused to. And ceased to be clergy in France. And the 24 that did ceased to be meaningful clergy in France. New Pope Pius VI refused to recognize the oath. He's like, well, that's ridiculous. That's horrible. I refuse to have anything to do with France. Rome is cutting all communication with France, all diplomatic ties. I refuse to acknowledge the authority of the assembly. Which means that with one document written over one night, France effectively cut itself off from all religious authority. Because it was only Catholic. And it just killed this relationship with the Catholic Church. How's that going to work? Remember how we started all this? What did what did Ben Franklin say? If, if we don't start with prayer, if we don't start by connecting ourselves with God, everything's going to rapidly spin out of control, right? The assembly even created a Republican calendar with ten-day weeks, oh, yeah. so that people didn't know which day Sunday was. They didn't know which day the saints' holy days were. Because we want you to stop being religious. So you have a 10-day calendar, which makes much more sense. Enough with the, it's first day, second day, third day, fourth day. Very colorful name. And then, assuming an approximation of martial law, they began issuing arrest orders to anyone perceived as standing or speaking against the new republic. You don't get to differ with us. You don't get to disagree with us. If you speak in public against anything we're doing, you get thrown into prison. 
That's when the massive flood of execution starts. Because there's only two there's only two sentences. Life imprisonment or execution. Not life imprisonment. Imprisonment with no end to that imprisonment. We'll get around to letting you out someday if we think of it. So think. Now you're getting into the whole area of like um, of Man in the Iron Mask and Count Monte Cristo. People just getting thrown into holes and left there for decades. In fact, they were slaughtering so many people, the prisons were beginning to be overcrowded. And nobles and officials awaited their their turn to be executed, and there's no consistent way of executing people. Um, and they became a little bit under fire for executing people nastily. In France, at this time, one common way of executing people was still breaking them on the wheel. Don't let me go into what that means. It's just nasty. Or hanging, which is a lot more gruesome than you tend to think. We tend to think, you're dead. No, not necessarily. Or for noble families, the high officials, it was usually beheading with a sword or with an axe. And contrary to popular belief, that rarely worked on the first chop. Now, you're watching women and children dying this way. That's not going over well. So what do you do? Besides that, we're a purely democratic society now. Everybody should be killed the same way, democratically, mechanistically. I don't care whether you're a man or a woman or a child or an old man or noble or a commoner. You should all be killed exactly the same way, right? Because that's democratic. So, Sergeant Antoine Louis was engaged to devise a new means of execution that was quick, painless, and consistent. Working with German-born harpsichord maker, he invented the first... Louis said. That's what it's called. After Antoine Louis. But because the basic idea and the commissioning had come from a popular doctor, Joseph Ignace Guillotine, it was called the Guillotine. Popularly. And Louis went, it's the Louis Hat. I made it. No, but this is the guy, this is the politician that said this is what we should do. So good named after him. And then the E was added later by an Englishman because it works better in poetry. What kind of poetry uses the word guillotine? <laughs> Bad English poetry, yes. Between biscuits? Uh, I don't know. Okay. Seventeen ninety one. Most of those sauces, most of that Robespierre or not? Um, Robespierre is 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 kicking in, but he's his reign of terror stuff really starts. Well, about this time, about this time is where he starts getting really popular. Uh, all this has really been led by a guy named Saint Just up until this point. But that's. I want to end with this. First Amendment is passed in, in seventeen ninety one. Anybody remember what's involved in the First Amendment? Anybody remember what it's about? Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion, or prohibiting its free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or the press, or the right for people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. Why do you think that this seemed to have been important to America, given the context of what's going on in France? Do you understand context and how important historical context is? We look at this and we go, oh, see, it's all about religion. You go, it's all about let's not get nuts like the French are doing. Well, especially because the French were supporting America during the Revolution, so there was such close ties. There had been. See, there had been, yeah. Uh, I think he's still dead. 
Let's close in prayer with that because we got to be done. But do you understand how the context of this flows where you say, even at the very beginning, that Ben Franklin's like, you have to start with an appreciation of God or it will, no matter what you think you're doing, no matter how justified your revolution is, it will go south. You will start to become the very enemy you were trying to stop being. It happened in France. Is it, is it physically impossible for it to happen in the United States? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you for all that you've done in the history of our country to bring us to this point. I thank you for all the good that the United States has done. I thank you for the, for the passionate commitment to your gospel that so many people have had. But I pray, Lord, help us to know that we need to do more than just give lip service. We need to genuinely start and end and fill every decision with your word, with your wisdom, with seeking you out. Pray, Lord, be glorified, not just by what we decide, but how we go about doing that. Help us, Lord, to, to be your people first and foremost and throughout. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, we'll start next time by talking a little bit about the cult of reason in France.